Hello and welcome to The Beethoven Files, episode 18. I'm Terence O'Grady, and today we're going to look at a work composed in 1800 and 1801 that has not, over the years, been given as much attention as the composer's other early works for orchestra. It's a ballet, based freely on the Prometheus legend and titled The Creatures of Prometheus, with the libretto and choreography by Salvatore Vigano the then-recently-appointed ballet master of the Vienna court. It premiered in March 1801 in Vienna and was given 28 performances. Critical reaction was mixed, both in regards to Vigano's choreography and Beethoven's music. Vigano's version of the Prometheus story was not the traditional one, but cobbled together from his own ideas and a retelling from an 18th-century French novel. Swafford's biography of Beethoven, which I've referenced before, makes a number of very interesting points about the social and philosophical implications of Vigano's version and its embodiment of the spirit of the Enlightenment and, to a lesser extent, the ideals embodied in the French Revolution. I'm not going to try to duplicate those points here, but, as always, Swafford's book is worth consulting on this and other matters. There's no question that the choreographer himself had at least some of these issues in mind when he formulated his ballet. As the playbill announced, the work features the main character as a sublime spirit who came upon the men of his time in a state of ignorance, who refined them through art and science and imparted to them morals. And Beethoven himself was by no means oblivious to these issues, but it's difficult to say whether in 1800 he was giving them any great thought when he accepted the commission. He was certainly eager to write dramatic music, although opera was understandably his ultimate goal, and he knew those opportunities would not come his way for a while. As far as his dedication, in 1800 and early 1801, to the ideals of the Enlightenment, or the social currents stirred by the French Revolution, we don't have a lot of evidence. Beethoven makes in one of his letters in this period an off-handed comment to one day composing only for the poor, and some of his later letters do make specific reference to Enlightenment ideals. But it's quite possible that Beethoven at this point accepted the commission as eagerly as he did, mostly because it provided an entree into the world of dramatic music and gained him access to a sophisticated and wealthy audience. Of course, Beethoven was not completely inexperienced in composing ballet music when he took on the job of providing music for Prometheus. While still living in Bonn in March 1791, he composed a so-called Knight's Ballet as an entertainment for a carnival event organized by Count Waldstein, a characteristic ballet in old German costume. The music, which was actually attributed to the Count himself as a gesture of friendship on Beethoven's part, with perhaps a little coercion involved, consists of a series of separate numbers, most of them brief, including a march, a pair of German songs, a hunting song, a recurring romance, a war song, drinking song, and coda, all totaling less than 12 minutes in performance. The music may be based in part on some melodic ideas contributed by the Count, who was an amateur composer. It is, at any rate, lively and idiomatic, if not particularly original. But now, on to Beethoven's music for The Creatures of Prometheus. The work consists of a somewhat conventional overture, followed by a series of numbers corresponding to sections within the ballet itself. Some are fairly short and of relatively little originality or importance. Others are longer with unique features and genuine points of interest. The overture begins with a series of chords that project a self-conscious seriousness and has been compared to the opening of Mozart's overture to the Magic Flute. This overture in C major and beginning in 3-4 time opens with four stately chords for the full orchestra, an orchestra which, by the way, features the standard complement of strings, as well as two flutes, oboes, clarinets in C, horns, and trumpets also in C, as well as timpani. These four chords do establish a dignified, almost ceremonial mood, although perhaps with less authentic gravitas than the opening to the Magic Flute Overture. The first chord is actually not a C major tonic chord. 
It's a secondary dominant seventh chord, which pushes us briefly in the direction of the subdominant chord, F major. You may recall that Beethoven's first symphony began in a similar way. That opening apparently became a matter of at least mild controversy, the idea of beginning a composition not on the tonic chord of whatever key you're in. Whether that controversy was authentic or just a way to find fault with a young and sometimes brash composer, there did not seem to be any hue and cry in this case, at least not directed at the opening measures of the overture, which actually feature two chromatic chords in the first three measures. In the end, though, the opening fortissimo chords simply direct us to the dominant, which Beethoven pauses on with a fermata. This is followed by a pair of related four-bar phrases, rather simple and quite dignified, played pianissimo at first, with temporary crescendo passages coming later, and with oboes and horns assigned the most important melodic activity initially, but soon joined more widely by the rest of the orchestra, with the upper strings providing some brisk counter-melody figures against it. We then shift to alla breve or cut time with the tempo marking of Allegro Molto con Brio and a drop down to pianissimo to what is the equivalent of the first subject in a sonata form. It's a very fast-moving, bustling theme which hints at a lighter element, again somewhat like the magic flute overture, but not fugal in this case. It consists of a series of staccato eighth notes, initially starting on the tonic note dropping a fourth to the dominant, and then scampering back up the scale, two notes past the tonic, before returning to it at the beginning of the next measure. This single idea, sometimes with minor variation, and accompanied mostly by soft chords and downbeats by the lower strings, dominates the first half of the 12-measure subject. It's repeated, sequentially and otherwise, several times before yielding to more generic scale-wise passages, also in 16th notes. The entire theme is then presented with a fuller orchestral accompaniment, initially in sustained chords, but eventually featuring a new syncopated idea with a sforzando accent on the second beat of the measure. Here is the entire first subject. The second subject is a particularly colorful one, featuring an exposed texture with the melody presented in the flutes in thirds and with an initial contramelody in the oboes. There's really nothing else quite like it among Beethoven's early orchestral works. It begins with a triadic arpeggio starting on the fifth of a G major chord and quickly moves to stepwise descending motion with across-the-bar ties. 
Clarinets and bassoons then join in as the eight-measure melody is repeated. After the ascending triad motive is bandied about in the orchestra for a few measures, a little of which you heard at the end of my excerpt, we veer into G minor and encounter a more serious theme played in octaves in first and second violins, one which ascends gradually in longer note values against a descending bass line. The theme begins quietly, crescendos gradually, and is then interrupted by the fortissimo explosion of a diminished chord from the entire orchestra that seems to direct us to C minor as the last two bars of the previous theme are repeated quietly, only to be interrupted by another explosion, this time sending us back to G. This new theme takes on the role of what we have in past episodes referred to as the closing section. Overtures of this sort are not exactly the same as opening symphonic movements in sonata form, but they often do resemble them in many ways, and that's the case for this particular overture. The excerpt you just heard extended beyond the so-called closing section theme into what is tantamount to a development section. That development section began by quoting the first part of the first subject and then escorting it through new tonal areas. New syncopated motives, somewhat reminiscent of the transition between the first and second subjects, eventually start to dominate in a mock dramatic passage. But it's a little difficult to take all of this very seriously because the abundance of staccato markings render it more playful than ominous. And soon enough, we're back in the original tonic key of C major. And, just as in a conventional sonata form, both subjects eventually return in that key. We, however, are not going to follow their progress because we have many movements to talk about in this episode, and so we're going to move on now to the introduction of the ballet proper, in common time, marked Allegro non troppo, and eventually in C minor. As the action begins, we see two lifeless statues, a man and a woman, representing humanity in its unrealized state. Prometheus decides to awaken the two with the gift of fire. But Zeus does not approve and summons up a terrible storm to stop him. Prometheus prevails, but he is exhausted by the effort. Of course, there were musical depictions of storms well before Beethoven's time, and most audience members would be quite capable of reading the musical devices, the musical signs, which indicated that sort of event. The trick, of course, was to make use of those musical devices that indicated a storm to the audience without using them in such a way as to sound like all other composers trying to conjure up a storm musically. How did Beethoven do in this regard? Pretty well, actually although he was to do far better in the storm movement of the pastoral symphony, with which the introduction to Prometheus shares some musical ideas. Here, Beethoven begins with a tremolo between two notes a half-step apart in the strings, against sustained notes in the winds, to suggest the distant rumbling of thunder. These alternate with staccato quarter notes, which in this context sound rather ominous. We then hear a melodic fragment, only six notes long, very quietly in the strings, that first outlines an ascending diminished chord and then, after the top note hovers briefly on a dotted quarter note, moves back down to the starting point by step. It's really only a fragment, but it repeats again and again, crescendoing all the while. And soon the dotted quarter note is eliminated and the six note motive is played in constant eighth notes, building up tension until the idea is interrupted by a pianissimo timpani roll. Let's hear that much. 
The repeated six-note motive yields to a series of accented and sustained full-diminished seventh chords played by the full orchestra, a typical storm-evoking gesture interrupted by a quick little ascending motive in the winds that springs up a triad. This is clearly heard as the musical equivalent of a streak of lightning. By the way, Beethoven employs a similar device with considerably more subtlety in the later storm movement of the Pastoral Symphony. The accented diminished chords and lightning streaks are then put aside for a while, and the repeated melodic motive outlining a diminished chord makes a reappearance for six bars, leading this time to a thunderous fortissimo on a full G minor chord, which starts at the bottom of the string's range, jumps to the top, and works its way down again. This idea repeats, although the chords themselves change as the bass line descends beneath them, stopping briefly on A minor before the bass line continues its descent. Meanwhile, flutes, oboes, and bassoons add their own rather jagged melodic phrases into the mix as the texture grows more complex. All of this goes on for some time, and our final goal is actually C minor, or at least the dominant of C minor. But before we get there, we are assailed by a number of chromatic chords which keep the tension level high. Finally, the storm begins to abate, the texture thins, the dynamic level quiets, and we pause on the dominant chord a couple of times, the volume now increased to forte. Then, a melodic idea, similar to the one I mentioned earlier, based mostly on a diminished triad, is then introduced fortissimo in the strings. It quickly degenerates into a descending chromatic line, and more of the half-step tremolo idea we heard earlier. But now, both the texture and the volume level are once again decreased, and we end very quietly, with both the storm and presumably Prometheus himself both exhausted. In the next section, the two statues come to life and immediately begin to dance together gaily. Here's a little bit of their very elegant and mostly quite cheerful dance music. But Prometheus seems to have expected more from humanity than this flighty display and becomes angry. Beethoven's music immediately establishes that Prometheus is very serious about this matter in the opening adagio section, with the sforzando accents and its very formal-sounding melodic motives, especially the 32nd note triplet figures doubled in octaves. It isn't long before a hint of the sinister creeps in as diminished chords are outlined by the unfolding melodic fragments. 
Soon Prometheus has made his decision. Humanity is apparently a failure and must be destroyed. The Allegro con brio section that follows is in D minor initially and shows him beginning to take action to that effect, the music turbulent and agitated. But before Prometheus can do his worst, heaven intervenes, and a divine light, which shines down, makes him change his mind. Musically, that light and his change of heart is depicted by an abrupt halt to the minor key ferocity and the introduction of quiet, sustained chords in the oboes and bassoons, soon spreading elsewhere in the texture, while chromatic movement in the bass soon lifts us out of D minor and to a fermata on a peaceful C major, which is actually the dominant chord in the key of F where the next section begins. Now that Prometheus has decided that he will not eliminate humanity, he concludes that humanity must be improved, educated, and shown the way. He plans to take them to Parnassus, and what better music could there be than a genteel and quiet florid minuet to accompany them on that journey? Here's a bit of it. That lovely little minuet takes us to the end of the first act. The second begins with the gods having gathered on Mount Parnassus. Prometheus arrives with the two humans in tow and explains that their minds and emotions need to be educated and refined. Beethoven's music here is not especially remarkable. It begins with more very dignified, ceremonial-sounding chords, marked forte and fortissimo, and then proceeds to some rather delicate traveling music as Prometheus and the two humans approach. Here is just the beginning of this section. The next section, an extended adagio in common time and B-flat major, is much more interesting and surprisingly colorful, as the humans, with the purpose of arousing their emotions, are treated to the harp playing of Amphion, in an unusually extravagant use of the instrument for Beethoven, and the flute playing of Euterpe, or possibly Orion, at times lyrically expansive and at other times almost coquettish with its staccato ascending triads and trills. The flute is soon joined by bassoon and then clarinet 
in a series of more expansive lyrical phrases, all of this against pizzicato accompaniment in the strings. Eventually, the string players pick up their bows for a series of alternating repeated eighth note and sixteenth note patterns as the sweeping harp chords re-enter, and Beethoven introduces some unexpected chromatic chords as we make our way to F minor, and more lyrical phrases are alternated with sighing figures. F major returns as we move toward a fermata, and we then hear an equally surprising coloristic effect, nothing else quite like it in early Beethoven, an impassioned, cadenza-like cello passage, usually attributed to Orpheus, despite his usual preference for the lyre. This surprising cello cadenza turns out to be just the introduction for an equally impassioned sustained melody, accompanied by the orchestra in an andante quasi-allegretto section. Here's the first part of it.
Not surprisingly, with all of this passionate music, the two humans have fallen in love. The next section is described as their joyful dance upon discovering a new world. But we're going to skip to section 8, where the two are taught the martial arts by the god Mars. Beethoven supplies an impressive little march in D major, beginning quietly, but soon crescendoing to fortissimo with weak beat accents, and abounding with appropriately martial rhythms based on dotted eighth and sixteenth notes. We even hear a little timpani solo in the opening measures. It's all fairly light-hearted and jolly at first, especially after the rather blustery opening, but things take a more serious turn when we move to D minor, and the sforzando accents become even more plentiful. Here's the very first part with a turn to D minor, although other key changes still lie ahead. The more cheerful D major section eventually returns, somewhat as in a short rondo, but the episodes in between these recurrences actually serve as quite clever little development sections, where the military-sounding rhythms are tossed around effectively within the orchestral texture. There's also a quick little coda, and the whole movement is bursting with rhythmic energy. The next section is a bit grimmer. Melpomene, the muse of tragedy, comes on the scene, and since Prometheus was the bringer not only of life to his two humans, but also inevitably death, she considers it righteous to punish him with death. He is overthrown and appears to be dead. Here's a short excerpt from the section showing Prometheus's downfall. In the next section, Thalia, goddess of comedy and pastoral poetry, attempts to rectify this unfortunate situation. She overturns death by summoning youth and nature to neutralize it. Prometheus awakens and watches the scene. Beethoven represents all of this activity with a lilting pastoral movement in 6-8, initially featuring flutes and oboes, but soon bringing in bassoons and the upper strings in a melodic capacity. The melody, although quite simple and somewhat repetitive, has a rustic, attractive, dance-like air about it, with some drone-like passages in timpani and double basses, and the occasional weak-beat accent to keep the rhythm lively.
Beethoven then provides a rather regal-sounding introduction as Silenus, the god of wine and inebriation, enters. This is followed by an elegant adagio solo dance section featuring a flute solo abetted by the bassoon. A little later, the first violins take center stage with a series of 30-second note flourishes. This leads to a new allegro section, representing a comic dance revolving around the virtues of wine for lifting the spirits. Here is the adagio section beginning with the flute solo, going into the cheerful allegro section with oboes and horns initially sharing the main melodic material. We hear next the dance of Pan and two fawns or nymphs. It's another brisk, cheerful country dance with some military overtones and once again evoking Mozart from time to time. It's in 2-4 time and marked allegro and unfolds in multiple sections. Here's the first part of it. In the section that follows, the three graces appear and continue to work on the education of the woman, largely, it seems, in terms of social refinements. The prima ballerina then does a solo dance, the cupids arrive, and the wedding between the man and the woman is being prepared. We'll hear the opening very stately andante, and then after a brief cadenza, the adagio section for the solo dance a somewhat languid dance in 3-4, the dolce and at times heavily ornamented melody escort originally for a basset horn, a first for Beethoven, and later handed to the oboe. Here is the opening andante and some of the adagio section that follows. Thank you. 
The mood changes when the tempo changes to allegro, and a more sprightly tune, marked allegretto and in 2-4 time, is heard, still featuring the basset horn and oboe, presumably representing the hustle and bustle involved in the wedding preparations. Here's the first part of it. The next section begins with a rather jaunty little andantino introduction where the man is brought before Apollo. We then encounter an extensive section beginning adagio, but with later tempo changes, featuring the primo ballerino, or lead male dancer, presumably Vigano himself. The melody here is more graceful, even a little coquettish in places. Clarinet and bassoon are widely featured as the solo eventually becomes a duet. As the music continues, we encounter meter as well as tempo changes, but we'll only hear the first part. The final movement depicts the wedding where various groups enter one by one, paying tribute to the gods and celebrating Prometheus's great accomplishment in creating and refining humankind. This section is likely the best-known part of the ballet since it features a famous melody, described by Swafford and others as an English country dance that is presented right away in the first violins and which will be used as the basis for variation in the finale of Beethoven's Symphony No. 3 in E-flat, the Eroica Symphony, as well as his Eroica Variations for Piano. I don't think many people would contend that his treatment of the melody here is as ingenious as it is in the Eroica Symphony. But Beethoven here introduces some contrasting sections that are at the very least very colorful, while still managing to reference the opening melody from time to time in ways that are sometimes quite subtle. Here is the opening section.
As I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, The Creatures of Prometheus was given a respectable number of performances and was certainly no disaster, critical or otherwise. But Beethoven was not very pleased with the response given to his music, and so he, not uncharacteristically, blamed the choreographer, saying in a letter to a friend that the ballet master has not done his part so well as might be. The point is also sometimes made that the ballet audiences of the day expected the music for the dance to be applied with a light touch, and perhaps Beethoven's, despite all its popular elements, was perhaps not quite light enough. But if Beethoven was slightly discouraged that his score had not won him more acclaim, he was too busy to fixate on it. There were other projects in the pipeline, and they must all be brought along. Among these were three sonatas for violin, numbers 6, 7, and 8, all completed in 1802. And it is these that we'll turn our attention to in the next episode. 